I wasn't trying to make a grand and glorious uh, entrance this morning. I've got a hitch in my get-along, and uh, it takes me a while to get up here. Someone told me years ago that one mark of aging is that your back goes out more often than you do, and uh, I think I've reached that, uh, that point in my life. So I'm going to uh, teach as long as I can, and you uh, listen as long as you can. And if you get through before I do, just raise your hand and <clears throat> we'll move on to something else. Turn uh, with me, please, to the fourth chapter of Acts. We have been considering various aspects of our mission statement over the past uh, few weeks, and today we've come to the topic of fellowship. And I would like to read what your uh, elders have said, fellowship is caring for and encouraging the body at Cole Community Church. As members with one another in Christ's body, we have the privilege and responsibility of bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ and to love one another. This involves spending time with one another, sharing experiences and meals together, meeting individually and in small groups in which genuine caring can take place, encouraging one another to love and good works. Caring for the body at coal involves helping those who are in financial need, testifying to the grace of God in our lives to others, using our gifts to serve one another, loving one another deeply, working through our differences with humility and forgiveness, and gently restoring those who are, who are ensnared in sin. Encouraging the body at coal means weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, associating with those unlike us, praying for one another, and speaking the truth to one another in love. In this way, we diligently preserve the bonds of unity, honor Christ our head, and accurately display his character to a watching world. And then there are a number of passages that we have listed to corroborate that understanding of the term fellowship. The word fellowship is a very elastic term. We use it to cover a number of bases. It can describe a partnership. It can describe what we call hanging out with our friends. It can describe this time over here between services where we get a cup of coffee and we stand around and talk to one another. It's descriptive of a, a grant to a, a graduate student in a university. It's used in a, a lot of different ways, but originally the term fellowship had a very exact and precise meaning. It meant to share what you have with others. That's a description of a fellowship meeting. We refer to our Wednesday morning men's fellowship as the fellowship, and we've tried to get across to those men the idea that this is a place where you come and you bring your gifts and your energy and your love and your time, your goods, and you share those with others. Fellowship really has the idea of seeking, seeking out the needs that other people have and then meeting those needs if you possibly can. Our English word fellowship actually comes from an Icelandic term. Uh, Johan could tell us uh, what it means. Uh, it's the term phalagi. 
That means characterized by a propensity toward helping others. Interestingly enough, that is precisely what the Greek term means, the New Testament term for fellowship, which occurs in a number of different texts, is the word koinonia, which you're familiar with, I'm sure. The uh, word koine was used of the common language of that day. I've commented on the fact that the New Testament was not written in literary Greek, classical Greek. It was written in street language, which is another indication of our Lord's commonness, his willingness to get down and dirty and and to express himself in the same language that's common to all. It's also the word from which our word coin comes, the medium of exchange, the common medium of, a medium of exchange is the coinage of our culture. So it has that idea of things that are held in common. Uh, I have certain things that God has given to me. You have a need, so I'm willing to share those. The same is true of you. You have certain things that I need. And as I express those needs, or as you become aware of those needs, you move to meet them. That's what fellowship actually is. Now, there's one text in the New Testament that perhaps better than any other expresses that idea. It's found here in Acts 4 and Luke's description of the early church. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. That's the key phrase. Uh, The verb here to share all that they have is the root verb from which the word koinonia comes. The idea of sharing what you have. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was with them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, extraordinary situations call for extraordinary measures, and that's what was happening in, in Jerusalem during this, uh, this period. This is not a descriptive of a political system. This is not socialism or communism. This is not something that's imposed from above. It came from the heart. Here's what was happening in Jerusalem. There were thousands of Jews that had gathered, probably hundreds of thousands had gathered on the day of Pentecost, and thousands had become Christians on the day of day of Pentecost. We know that the number reached or exceeded 5,000 by this time. Many of these people stayed behind in Jerusalem to be taught by the apostles. They needed housing. They needed clothing. They needed food. And so everyone pooled their resources. Whatever whatever goods they had, they made available to others. They, they brought them to the feet of the apostles, and the apostles distributed them. That was the way they, were, they met needs in that day. And what Luke does is adduce a prime example of that giving. We always learn so much from just seeing people as they minister to one another. It's one thing to see it in in theory, as Luke lays it out for us here in in these verses. It's another thing to see it in practice. Uh, You know, my favorite quotation from Emerson, every man is my superior in some way in that I can learn from him. 
And what Paul, or what Luke does in this section is give us someone from whom we can learn. Barnabas, or Joseph was actually his name. Barnabas was his nickname. And the verses that follow tell us about this, uh, this son of, of encouragement. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Actually, three times in this uh, text we're told that, that the, the goods were placed at the apostles' feet. First, in this uh, statement of, of the practice of the early church, and then with regard to the specific example of Barnabas, and later with reference to Ananias and Sapphira, who represent a negative example of, of the principle. So here's this good man, Barnabas, who brings the proceeds from the sale of a piece of property, and he makes this money available to the apostles so they can distribute it to those that had need, provide housing, food, clothing, for these Jewish Christians who were remaining behind in in Jerusalem. Luke gives us some uh, bits and pieces of, of Barnabas' biography here. We're told that his name was Joseph. That was his real name, which was a name that had uh, rich associations with uh, Jewish faith. But he was surnamed or nicknamed Barnabas. It's an Aramaic word, bar, son, navi, that means helper. Now Luke tells us it means uh, son of encouragement, or at least that's the way our translations put it. But it's that word parakalesis that we run into in the New Testament that's sometimes translated paraclete, that actually means a helper. If you remember the King James translation of of uh, the upper room discourse, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper. That's the word. It's someone who's always helping others. That was his predisposition. That was his inclination. He was always looking ways for ways to help others. And we're told that he was a Levite. I think there's a reason why Luke... Uh, brings that point into play. I think he was one of those uh, sons of Levi whom Malachi predicted the Lord would purify. Back in Malachi's uh, era, the the clergy became corrupt. Uh, Bob Dylan says they were masters of the book and masters of the proposition, but there was no life in them. Malachi rebukes them, but he says the time is coming when when God will purify the sons of Levi. And I think this is one of those uh, Levites whom God had purified. But I think there's another reason why it's mentioned that he's a Levite clergyman. Because Levites were not permitted to own property in Israel. Uh, This piece of land that he owned could not have been in Palestine. It's mentioned that he's a Cypriot hails from the island of Cyprus. So his property was probably on the island of of Cyprus. If so, he was a very wealthy man. To own a piece of property on Cyprus is like owning 100 feet of uh, waterfront on Payette Lake. I mean, this is a very valuable piece of property, which he sold. So this was not an inconsiderable amount of money that he placed at uh, at the apostles' feet. He's described here, as a son of of encouragement, because that's what characterized him. That term son of is a Semitic 
idiom for one characterized by help. That's, that's the way people thought of Barnabas. Whenever they, you see him in action, in the Acts of the Apostles, he's, he's moving alongside others, consoling them in their sorrow, aiding them in their weakness, keeping them out of mischief, strengthening their grip upon God. He's often eclipsed by some of his greater contemporaries like the Apostle Paul and uh, the great evangelist and John Mark who wrote the, uh, the Gospel of, of Mark. But as we shall see as we look through the story of this man's life, there would have been no Apostle Paul apart from Barnabas. There would have been no John Mark. There would have been no Gospel of Mark. There would have been no second and third missionary journeys, those journeys in which Paul gained such a, such a name for uh, for himself. Uh, a number of years ago, I came across a prayer in a Roman Catholic prayer book that so struck me that I put it in the back of my uh, Bible. I often look at it. Uh, the last part of it goes like this, that others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I. This is a prayer, you understand. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others may be preferred before me in everything. That others become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That's quite a prayer. That doesn't naturally spring to our lips, but uh, as Paul would say in Philippians, we should not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but we really ought to consider others better than ourselves. And that's such a novel and shocking idea that he has has to elicit the uh, the illustration of Jesus, who was in the form of God. But he didn't think that it was important to, to hold on to the, his equality with God in that sense. But he made himself of no reputation and he became a servant. And he gave up his life for us. That, that's exhibit A. Barnabas, I think, is exhibit B. Of someone spent it, who spent his whole life looking for ways to meet the needs of others. That's what fellowship is all about. It's... It's more than standing over in a corner with a cup of coffee in our hand and and gabbing. It's more than than getting together uh, during the week just uh, to spend some time talking. It really is looking for needs in other people's lives that that we can meet using our giftedness, using our resources, using whatever God has put at our disposal to meet the needs of others. Barnabas was that kind of man. He looked around and he saw that there were immense financial needs. So he sold this very valuable piece of property and he took all the money, which is really the point of the Ananias and Sapphira story. They they did not. Barnabas took all the money. He laid it at the feet uh, of the apostles. Now, we pick up the story again in chapter... uh, uh, chapter 9, 
In between chapter 4 and chapter 9, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and then the bold witness of the apostles and their imprisonment, the persecution, the early first stages of the persecution of the church. It's a physical law that with heat comes expansion as the uh, church felt the uh, the persecution uh, of the clergy, the Jewish clergy in Jerusalem, they began to scatter, going everywhere preaching the gospel. In chapter 9, you have the story of Saul breathing out murderous threats against the church, trying to exterminate uh, the church. And then, as you know, on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Lord. His life was radically changed from, from that point. We pick up the story Again, in chapter 9, Paul began to preach in Damascus. As I pointed out before, he thought he was God's gift to the church. Here's a man, a a brilliant intellect, someone who was well-trained, who was a rabbi, who understood Jewish thinking and theology and culture. He thought he was going to turn the world upside down. Instead, he created a riot in Damascus. The Christians said, we've got to get this man out of town before he sets the cause of Christ back ten years. And uh, they hustled him over the wall in a, in a filthy, smelly fish basket. And he ran into, the, uh, uh, ran into the darkness all on his own. No support, no help, no friends. Out, went out into the Arabian desert for several years. Probably the years that corresponded to those years in which our Lord taught the twelve. After that period, he came back down to Jerusalem, thinking that he could immediately associate with the apostles, but that uh, was not to be. Verse 26, Luke skips over several years uh, of Paul's uh, uh, history and takes us immediately from the debacle at Damascus to Jerusalem. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Here's this uh, fellow who shows up whose whole purpose in life had been to kill Christians. And then he drops out of sight for three and a half years, and suddenly he shows up knocking on their door asking for inclusion into the church. And you would think what I would think. This this man is a a spy. He's He's an agent. Uh, secret agent. Uh, who wants him meddling in our affairs? And they, they would not accept him. They wouldn't accept him into their homes. They wouldn't take him into their hearts. But big-hearted Barnabas did. Verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of, of Jesus. He took the time to research this issue, to find out what had really happened, to give the the apostles the data that they needed to judge accurately whether or not Paul uh, was a a friend to grace. So Saul uh, stayed with them. Saul, of course, was known as, Paul was known, of course, as Saul at that point in his life. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews But they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off uh, to Tarsus. 
Now see, uh, here again, there would, there would have been no Apostle Paul apart from Barnabas. The, uh, the apostles would not have received him. This is probably the incident that Paul refers to in Galatians 1 when he, he tells his own story. He goes down to Jerusalem. He spends 15 days with Peter. And he was included in as a result of that, of that conversation. He overlooks the fact that Barnabas uh, was the one who who opened the door for him. But the fact, again, is that there would be no Apostle Paul if it were not for Barnabas. This account is so prosaic here in, in Acts 9, it's easy to miss the significance of it. Uh, Alexander White writes this in his commentary. Barnabas was never destined to shine uh, in the service of Christ like the Apostle Paul. Yet Paul never did a more shining deed than Barnabas when he took Paul into his heart, when every other heart was hardened against him. Well done, he says, you true son of consolation. Now here's this behind-the-scenes man. Uh, he doesn't get a great deal of press in the book of Acts, but there would have been no Apostle Paul. If Barnabas hadn't been willing to hope, open his heart. You see, here's a man who is willing to look at a brother and, and, and sense what his needs are and to do whatever he could in order uh, to meet that need. Now Luke goes on to summarize their uh, ministry in Jerusalem. Paul began to preach again, created another riot. And uh, so again, the church decided they had to uh, move him on. To, to some other place, and Paul went back to Tarsus, which was his hometown. He drops out of sight uh, for a number of years. Now we pick up the story again in chapter 11. <clears throat> Halfway through Luke's history of Acts, the scene shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, big, bustling metropolis. A melting pot. It's described as the Oriental West. It's kind of a mixture of East and, and West. It's famous in Christian annals because a group of unsung heroes, Jewish Christians, as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem, began to make their way all over the world. And wherever they went, they, they shared their faith. And they uh, went to Antioch and they began to share the gospel with uh, Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, there in in that uh, in that city, they preached the gospel. They disregarded their sectarian uh, biases and background as Jews. They began to preach to anyone that would listen to them, and people began to respond to the gospel. And a church was formed, and it began to to grow and flourish. And word reached the apostles in Jerusalem, and they said, "This this can't be. This is not kosher. Something wrong." These are not Jews. They still had not cleared their own heads of their racism, their political interests. And uh, they dispatched uh, Barnabas, who was their troubleshooter. And Barnabas uh, went up to Antioch. Let me read uh, beginning with verse 19, chapter 11, verse 19. Those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 
And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's Luke's way of referring to Gentile conversions. Also Paul's way. He turned from vain and empty idols to serve the living and, and true God. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and, and they sent Barnabas, big Barney, good old Barney, big-hearted Barney, up to Antioch. If anyone could assess the situation, uh, it was Barney, Barney the ombudsman. And uh, he makes his way up to Antioch, and when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. What he saw was a bunch of changed lives, unholy, riotous, pagan men and women whose hearts had been changed, who had been graced by the goodness of God, who were turned into, into tender, loving, courageous, gracious followers of, of Jesus Christ. And Barnabas was able to set aside his uh, Levitical background and, and uh, his Jewish uh, sectarianism and all the biases that he, cultural, political, religious biases that, uh, that he had. He set all of this aside and he saw the grace of God in his grief. It's a major turning point in the church. And again, if grace, if, if Barnabas had not had the grace to, uh, see what God was doing in that church, then the church could have gone another, another direction. It could have been a Jewish, exclusively Jewish, Church. This was the beginning of that great ministry to the to the Gentiles that eventually took Paul throughout the uh, the known world at that time. Barnabas was the key. Here's this quiet fellow that I suspect some of you never even heard about, but he changed the uh, course of of church history. Luke gives him a a rare and praise uh, eulogy here. It's not. In Luke's character, uh, as I understand, Luke was really writing a brief for Paul's uh, trial. I think that's why the book of Acts was was written. This was prepared for Paul's attorneys as they were going to defend him before Nero. Uh, that's this, at least, is my opinion. So his uh, his style of writing tends to be fairly straightforward and objective, but here he launches into a. Uh, a, a eulogy. Uh, verse 24. Barnabas was a good man. It's a great word. Uh, two words for good in the New Testament. One means uh, uh, righteous. The other means affable and easygoing and mellow and uh, calm and, and beautiful. Actually, it's a word for beautiful. Luke says Barnabas was a beautiful guy. Why? Because he was he was full of the Holy Spirit, faith. That's what that's what made him beautiful. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and with uh, the Word of God, and a great number of people were brought uh, to the Lord. Barnabas looks at this church, and uh, his verdict is immediate and reassuring. Tells the, the folks back in Jerusalem, everything's okay. This is obviously the, the work of God. We must commend these people uh, to the Lord and, and to his word. Give them the help that, that they need. I think I mentioned years ago when I, when I was working with students at Stanford, uh, that was a 
pretty freaky looking bunch, long hair, weird wigged out looking kids. And uh, my father came out. Uh, my father was the pastor of a of a large metropolitan church in Dallas, Texas, and he was very, very conservative in his thinking and his politics. And uh, I took him to a fraternity meeting. I had a Bible study in the Theta Delta Chi house, and uh, my father tagged along. And some of the people that you know that are that are or were on the staff were in that particular gathering, except they didn't look then like they look now. Believe me. <clears throat> And uh, my father sat in that Bible study and didn't say a word. And after it was over, we were, we were driving back to the house, and he said, those young men really love Jesus, don't they? And I said, you bet your life they do. And he was really touched by that. And he went back to his congregation, and he said, we must open the doors of this church to these long-haired kids. Because they belong to us. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and uh, that was true of Barnabas. Uh, God had graced him. He understood uh, the God's largesse, if I can put it that way, his willingness to, to draw anyone in who come by by faith. See again, here, here's this uh, this good man who. Uh, is helping others on to God. That was the, that was the tenor. That was the characteristic of his life. He walked into a situation. He said, what can I do to help? What do I have that I can give? And at this point, he gave his approval to this ministry. And he began to minister to this church for a while. The church began to grow. Uh, he was one of the primary teachers there. He, he looked at the situation and he said, I, I can't handle this anymore. I don't have the giftedness to do this. And so he, he went to look for Paul. Uh, Barnabas, verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And uh, the, the verb look has the idea of searching out. He, he couldn't find him when he first went to Tarsus. Paul had sunk into, in, 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 he'd been forgotten. And Barnabas had to look him up and, Brought him back to Antioch, and put him to work teaching the believers there, because he recognized that Paul had gifts that he didn't have. So he could have built that church around himself. He could have grown that church around himself. But he determined that someone else needed to step into that position. He's giving away his opportunity, okay? a willingness to, to search out others that are gifted. Have you ever thought about just keeping your eyes open as you, as you converse with your friends and asking yourself, what are the spiritual gifts that these people have and how can I encourage them into a place of ministry? That's what a son of encouragement does. You don't leave that sort of thing up to the elders. That's the sort of thing that all of us need to be doing. Keep our eyes open uh, on this, uh, this body of believers, asking ourselves, how can we help other people become great? Someone has said there's no end of the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. If we're willing to step back and encourage others into places of ministry, then we're, we're sons of encouragement. See, we're characterized by the sort of character uh, that uh, in, in Barnabas. Now, uh, in chapter 13, verse 1, 
We're told that in the church there were prophets and teachers. Uh, Barnabas, there's our, our friend Barnabas, who was the primary teacher. Simeon, called Niger. Most people believe that is the Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of our Lord. He had become a believer and was part of the leadership of the church in Antioch. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, that is possibly Luke, Dr. Luke who wrote this, uh, this uh, history. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the, Tet- uh, the Tetrarch, so here's an aristocrat, and Saul. You notice that Saul is at the end of the list. And uh, while they were worshiping the, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The early church uh, recognized their giftedness, laid hands on them, and sent them off on their great Gentile mission. And off they went to Cyprus and then to Turkey and they planted the churches that the book of Galatians were written to. This is what we call the first missionary journey. Now I want you to notice something interesting here. I'm not going to take time to read the chapters that follow, but I just I want to call your attention to a couple of uh, interesting uh, texts. In verse 6 of chapter 13, they travel through the whole island, that is the island of Cyprus, which is Barnabas' uh, hometown. Home, uh, that's where Cyprus was the island from which he came. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul. At that point, something happened. You can read the story for yourself. Paul encounters Elimas, this magician, deals with him. And if you look at verse 13, Luke then reports that from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. And after that, Barnabas drops into the background. Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. Barnabas is not mentioned at all. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. Verse 14, uh, pardon me, chapter 14, where Luke uh, reports what happened at Iconium. Now we're in, in Turkey, in Asia, in ancient Asia Minor. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. Now the only place that the order is reversed in this missionary journey is uh, in uh, Lystra, in, in Luke's report of what happened at Lystra, there was a, a man who was crippled and his feet lame from birth. And uh, Paul healed him. In verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. Uh, Zeus was the uh, head of the uh, Greek pantheon. And probably because Barnabas was a big fella, uh, I sort of think of him as Big Barney. I don't know why, this is the way he comes across to me. And, and because of certain inherent qualities that he had, just his presence, perhaps, they called him Zeus. And Hermes, who is the messenger of the God, who's a little fellow, as you know, that name was given to Paul because he probably did all the talking and he was a little guy. So, so Barnabas is called Zeus and uh, Paul is called uh, Hermes, uh, Mercury in, in Roman mythology, the messenger of the gods. So here you have the order of names reversed. Now, to their credit, they didn't accept this honor. They deflected it. But it gives you some some idea, again, of the uh, 
uh, the impact that these people had on these churches. Then, just uh, to hurry along here, in chapter 15, there is that council in Jerusalem that settled the issue of Gentile inclusion. When Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch and reported, not everyone was as enthusiastic as they were. Some, uh, quote, law-abiding citizens came up from Jerusalem, tried to lay the law on them again. We're told that uh, when they did, even Barnabas was led astray. Uh, they, they began, when, when the church in Antioch discovered that a contingent from Jerusalem was coming up, some of the Jews that up to that point had eaten with Gentiles stopped eating with them. Peter was one, Barnabas was another. Luke says, even Barnabas was led astray. He, 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 he fell. I don't know about you, but that comforts me when I find these Great uh, biblical Hebrews fall, uh, he, uh, heroes falling flat on their faces. Someone once pointed out that Walter Payton gained nine miles of yardage during his career, but he fell down every 4.6 yards. And uh, somehow that encourages me. And it's all right to fall down. Let's just get up, get going again. Anyway, the, the issue was settled. The, uh, the Gentiles were in. And then in chapter uh, 15... Verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And this was the beginning of that great second missionary journey in which Paul gained such fame. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. You have to go back to an earlier section of Luke where Luke reports, or pardon me, the Acts of the Apostles, where Luke reports that when they got to Turkey and John Mark, they had brought John Mark with them from Jerusalem and uh, he became their baggage carrier when they started on their first missionary journey. He did all right in Cyprus, but when he got into to Asia Minor, he chickened out. He started looking at the mountains and the, the, the bandits and everything that they had to face and he went home to mother and that ticked Paul off, no end, and now Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them, and Paul said, there's no way I'm going to take that baby with me. And uh, Luke says that their their dissension became so intense that they separated. The uh, word that's translated sharp disagreement in verse 39 is the word from which we get our English word paroxysm. They were hacked off at each other. They were really angry. Barnabas was determined to take Mark, and Paul was determined to leave Mark uh, behind, and so they separated. Well, who was right? Well, they both were. They both were. Mark would never have made it with the Apostle Paul. I just don't think Paul was the right man for Mark. Uh, And uh, Mark uh, flourished under Barnabas's more uh, tender, compassionate uh, leadership, I believe. So Barnabas took John Mark and went off to Cyprus with him. And Paul chose Silas as his companion. And that's why Paul and Silas come down to us in history as the, as the two great missionaries. And Barnabas just passes off the scene. Now here's another example of the way he is a son of encouragement. He looks at this young man who was such a failure and he says, this man deserves a second chance. He saw the potential in this youngster. 
And he said, I'm willing to devote my life to seeing that he becomes great, that he becomes everything that God wants him to be. And that's exactly what happened to Mark. You read through Second Timothy, and uh, Paul says, this man's useful to me for ministry. Bring, bring Mark to me. He's useful. He grew up under Barnabas's uh, tutelage. And if tradition serves us right, Mark went off to Alexandria in North Africa and founded the church there and eventually uh, uh, became the bishop of the church in Alexandria. He was Peter's sidekick for years. He wrote the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Incidentally, there's one little sketch of church history that tells us that in 477 A.D., they exhumed the body of Barnabas and they found him clutching a battered copy of the Gospel of Mark, a scroll of the Gospel of Mark to his chest. It's a wonderful little sidelight on this story. I thought of Shakespeare's words, the good that men do is interred with them. And I, there, would be, there would be no Gospel of Mark if there were not for Barnabas. As the story goes, Barnabas went on helping others in the island of Cyprus until he was martyred. Some, some years later. But he comes down in history as an example of that principle. There's no end to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. So if you're willing to give whatever you have, your time, your energy, your giftedness, the opportunities that God sends your way, whatever God has given to you to share that with others so that others can become great. That's what fellowship is all about. Now, let me issue one caveat, because um, uh, we mustn't think that that serving others is a lot of fun. Frankly, it's, uh, it's hard, uncertain, unsafe work, because not everybody will appreciate what you do. We keep thinking that if we, uh, if we serve others, then, oh, my, they're going to love us and they're going to appreciate us. But that's, that's not true. The mainspring for serving others is not what we get out of it. Nor is it even the fact that we love other people. It's love for Christ. It's the only thing that will sustain us. The only sufficient motivation for our service is doing it for the, for the sake of our Lord. Paul writes in Romans, Romans, be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Paul says is another place. We count ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We serve you, but we're doing it for the sake of Christ. It's love for Christ that, that energizes us and motivates us to serve. Dr. Oswald Chambers wrote, If we are devoted to the cause of humanity, we shall soon be crushed and brokenhearted. For we shall often meet with more ingratitude from men than we would from a dog. But if our motive is to love God, no ingratitude can hinder us from service to our fellow man. It's a good word. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times. Three times Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus then said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The only motivation for caring for others is love for Christ. There's an old story about three monks who gathered to listen to a reading of the uh, book of Revelation. And at the end of the reading, each was asked to choose the promise he loved best. One said, God will wipe away all tears. 
The second replied, to him that overcomes, I'll give to sit on my throne. The third answered, and, and this happened to be Thomas Akempis, who wrote The Imitation of Christ. His servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. And later he wrote in the imitation, not caring how to serve him much, but to serve him faithfully. Let's pray. Would that we had Barnabas' spirit, Lord, his heart, to serve others. Would that we understood that concept of fellowship that we take whatever we have and we share it with others. We're willing to give away anything that's ours in order to help others come into their own. Give us that that desire, Lord, to see others become great, no matter what it may cost us. Thank you for this encouraging word for this unsung hero without whom there would have been no Apostle Paul, no books of Romans or Corinthians or Galatians or any of the other of Paul's writings, no Gospel of Mark. We thank you for the contribution that he made, Lord, that we might be willing to serve as selflessly in that hidden, quiet way that has such an impact. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.